Okay, this guy is named Pastor D.J. Soto. He has an interesting testimony. He was raised in a Christian family and professed faith in Christ at a young age. And then he went to Bible college, and he got discouraged and disillusioned in Bible college, didn't care for it. And when he got out, he didn't darken the door of the church for several years. He got into TV work. He was a TV producer, was interested in technology and so forth. And one day, the TV station assigned him to cover something that a large youth group was doing in a megachurch. And he went out there and he saw that this youth group was doing all kinds of stuff with video and technology, and he was really impressed by that, really interested in that. He started to volunteer. He started to help out. Started coming to church. Long story short, he eventually became the pastor of technology in, in this large church. He developed apps for them. He developed their live stream platforms and so forth. Did a lot of stuff in technology. And then at some point, he decided to take it one step further, and he thought he would found a virtual reality church. You know these gizmos you can put on, um, and it simulates uh, certain experiences. Well, he thought people could get these devices and simulate a church experience. He quit his job as a pastor to work on this and started his uh, VR church. And he was able to simulate on the device. Uh, you could put it on, and you could simulate walking up to a nice country chapel and going in the back door and coming down the aisle and picking out your row and placing your avatar in the row. And then there would be a simulated sermon and simulated singing. He even was able to simulate baptism by immersion. Just imagine that. Well, he was so excited about this, he wanted to go around and market this, and so he began to visit pastors and churches sharing this idea so he could raise money, and he found that other pastors and churches were not that keen on this idea. And he found that the people who were joining his virtual reality church were not all that faithful. They were in and out a lot. Sometimes they would leave in the middle of the simulation. Sometimes the avatars would disappear, plus the technology gave him trouble sometimes. So the last I read, this effort was not going that well. Pastors and churches seemed to have little interest. Virtual reality church members were really not that faithful. Are you really surprised? Since what you are doing contradicts one of the most all-time quoted passages of the Bible in the history of Bible-quoting people. Here it is. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, the ethos of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, like many of the passages we have studied this summer, this one is very familiar. I can only imagine how many times this passage has been quoted by pastors to people, by parents to children, by friend to friend, by discipler to disciplee. 
It zeroes in, like Ron's passage last week, on something about practical Christian living. The gathering of the church together is not to be forsaken. Coming to church, coming to worship, coming to other gatherings, something that's to be held to as a rule. Now, the letter of Hebrews was written to these Jewish believers in some community, we know not where, and they were under pressure. If you look over at verse 32 of chapter 10, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So they were experiencing persecution, reproach, affliction, even prison at the hands of most likely the religious majority in the Jewish community where they lived. Some, verse 25, were tempted, therefore, to draw back from their public identification with the gathering of the Christian community, to drop out, to skip it, to say it's too much, it's not worth it. But the writer here is insisting that this must not be done for any reason. The whole context of the book of Hebrews views the failure to assemble with the body as a form of practical apostasy. That's what the writer is worried about, a departure from the practice of the Christian faith. It's not innocuous, it's serious. The whole book of this magnificent writing asks the question, how could you do such a thing as dropping out of the Christian assembly and, and failing to assemble when you know the superiority of Christ to everything, including the revealed religion of the Old Testament? Christ is superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to the Old Testament system, superior to the priesthood. Up in verse 11, it begins to talk about the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. There the priest stands daily, verse 11, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. They can never take away sins. But when Christ offered himself once for all in a single sacrifice by a single offering, he perfects for all time those who are being sanctified. No Old Testament sacrifice could ever do for us what Christ did through his once-for-all sacrifice, whereby he perfects the one who believes for all eternity. And so the writer is saying, you profess Christ and now you want to turn back? How can you do such a thing? There's a warning not to turn back. There are warnings throughout the letter of Hebrews, warnings of God's judgment, what judgment that might be is left, we might say, tantalizingly vague in the text. But the idea is this. You cannot come to Christ and then draw back. You cannot treat the person and work of Christ as something common and then expect that this will not offend God. So the book of Hebrews is a serious book. And finally here in chapter 10, the author gets to this subject of gathering together as believers, and he is saying to them, this you must not forsake for any reason. Given the superiority of Christ and what he has done for this, for you, you cannot do this. So let's take it like this. I'm just going to have an exhortation. 
Verses 23 and 25 are connected grammatically, and so the exhortation is spelled out in those two verses. Then there are given two purposes that fulfill the understanding of why we are thus exhorted. And then down at the end, I want to make a couple of applications about TV and live stream church. So let's begin there, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 23. And here is the exhortation, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, not neglecting to meet together. Verses 23 and 25 are connected. The hold fast is the main verb, and that is fulfilled by what we see in verse 25, by not neglecting the gathering together. It is part of our holding fast to our hope in Christ that we continue to meet together faithfully. Every time we gather as believers, we confess our hope. We preach with our feet when we walk through the doors of such a place as this. We say we believe in Christ. We are maintaining our testimony. We testify and declare to one and all that we follow Christ. This is what some of these Hebrews were drawing back from. Now, there's no reference here to a church building. We're in a period of history here where there were not yet building meeting houses. But even then, they gathered somewhere. So, yes, this does pertain to church attendance, worship services, other gatherings. We declare our hope in Christ by militantly resisting any temptation not to gather. Verse 25, don't neglect. I like the older term of not forsaking. The word means abandon or desert. When this habit of gathering dies for any believer, any family, any group, it is a great victory for the enemy. It is a great defeat for the church as we leave behind a clear and pronounced faithfulness to Christian witness, it's a form of spiritual apostasy. It's serious sin. And the writer of the Hebrews is worried that it's going to lead to an even greater apostasy. That's the whole concern of the book. So, in other words, the Lord is worthy of our continued witness He's worthy of a persevering faith. We confess the faith in baptism. We keep it week upon week in our gathering with God's people, thus renouncing the ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, the flesh does not want to go out to worship. It wants to be comfortable and do what is convenient. The world does not want us to gather. It says, come out here and do this, play this, do that game. It's so much more fun out here. The devil does not want us to gather. He says, what are you doing that for? That's just a bother. That's just going to be onerous. Why are you doing that? But the writer says, in defiance of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that we should cling to this, hold to it, never let it go. And the text adds a modifier, without wavering. The word is really without bending. Without bending this rule one inch. Have you bent this rule? 
Why did you do that? Think about it. Why did you do it? Was it the flesh, because it's easier? Was it the world, that there's something more interesting out there to do? Was it the devil and his lies that, you don't need to do this, what are you doing that for? Have you drifted from this? Why would you do so if the Holy Spirit says this you must not do? We're to persevere in our hope. That's the teaching of Scripture, the New Testament all over the place. Hold fast our confession and boasting in our hope. Hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let us hold fast our confession. All through the book of Hebrews, this is the concern. Perseverance is a mark of true faith. Not merely making a confession, but holding to it. Listen, brethren, we face all manner of challenges in this world as believers. Sufferings, trials, troubles, hurts, Disappointments, wounds, rejection, opposition, worldly temptation. But we are to hold fast. From the earliest days of the church, believers were so exhorted. Back in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas went up to Antioch and he exhorted the new believers there to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. On Paul's missionary journey, he exhorted the new believers to continue in the grace of God. And again, to encourage them to continue in the faith. We do not just make a confession. We keep our confession. And part of that is the gathering with believers. Verse 23 says, all of this reflects the faithfulness of God. God has been faithful to us. He calls us to be faithful to him. Now, I want you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. There's one verse I want you to look at. I think this is the only verse we'll turn to this morning But this is the only other time where this word gathering is used in the New Testament. The word for the gathering of the flock. Now concerning chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So here he refers to the gathering of the church at the end of the age and the rapture of the church. And he is saying, look, you're going to be there in that gathering. So now each each time there's an opportunity, you be there in the gathering today. You're going to be there then. You belong with God's people. So not only then, but now you also belong with God's people. And the writer adds a note of urgency. He says even more as you see that day approaching. It's a priority. It's urgent. It's not something to be neglected or treated as a casual thing. I mean, there's only so much time to redeem the time in these days. There's only so much time to do, you know, the things that God asks us to do. To redeem the time, to build up the body, to be part of the body. This passage is rightly used to teach one of the great priorities of the practical Christian life, gathering with believers. Hold fast, the writer said, to this. Now, I remember as a young man this uh, old story here about these three gray whales that got stuck 
inside the ice up by Alaska one winter. And they would suffocate if they couldn't get to the open sea. An Eskimo found them, and he started getting some friends. They were cutting holes in the ice and trying to lead them out five miles away to the open sea, slow going. Then some expert outdoor biologists got involved, and they brought this big helicopter with this big smasher on it, and they smashed holes in the ice, and then the Eskimos came with their chainsaws. And every 20 yards, they cut a hole in the ice and coaxed these whales to the next hole, and they would come up and get air, which they need to surface in order to live, then to the next hole, to the next hole. They led them five miles. It took eight days, a long journey of eight days. One of them did not make it. He went down in one hole and never came back up, presumed lost. His faith was shipwrecked. The Christian life, friends, is a long and arduous journey through many traps, perils, temptations, and dangers to the soul. Troubles, trials, temptations, hurts, problems, disappointments, how many have fallen away? The scripture is urging us here to hold our confession, make it to the end, persevere. Much of the answer to the question, how can we persevere, is answered by this text we gather with the assembly. That's how we are encouraged and nurtured along. We should never, ever draw back, reduce, cheat on our gathering with the church. Every gathering, every worship service, every ABF class, every Bible study, every small group is a hole in the ice so that we can breathe and refresh and make it to the end for which there is great reward and great testimony. It's easy to start. It's hard to finish. Paul told the early believers, through many tribulations, you shall enter the kingdom of God. The writer of Hebrews says, hold fast your possession. Uh, continue on. Keep on. Do not draw back. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together as some do. Persevere in your testimony. Don't shrink back for any reason. And I would add in our own context, especially for convenience, especially as a concession to our flesh and to the world, this is a sacred duty. So Christian gathering, you see, is a string of breathing holes in a frozen world filled with greed and sin and temptation and ungodliness and unbelief. And we rise for air as we gather with the Lord's body. We get strengthened and continue on. That's the exhortation. That's what the writer is saying here. Now, he has a couple of purposes to, so that we understand how we are to fulfill this and why we are to fulfill it. And you can see in verse 24 the words, one another... And you can see in verse 25, the words, one another. So there's a one another aspect to this. First, we understand that we gather to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We do not attend the gathering merely for ourselves, merely as a bump on the pew, for our own sakes, 
passive, uninvolved, and that's why TV church and live stream church can never fully fulfill this biblical mandate. We have developed in our day, as you know, very much a consumer church. We're in a consumer society. What's in it for me? What's the best deal for me? But there's a difference between a consumer Christian and a devoted disciple. A devoted disciple seeking to be a worshiper at some point is going to cast aside this consumer thinking. And you can see the word consider here. Think about this, verse 24. Think about how you can be a blessing to others. When you come into this place, don't look to be greeted. Look to who you can greet and encourage. Um, Show concern for the problems, infirmities, difficulties, hardships, weaknesses, temptations of others. And consciously and intentionally spur them on. The word, you know, stir up here is a word for provoke. It's the same word used of the Apostle Paul in Athens. When he came into Athens and all the, world, all the city was filled with idols and his spirit was vexed within him. It's a spasm of feeling. And can be used positively, negatively. Here it's a positive thing. Give a spasm of feeling to someone else that they might become more devoted to the Lord Jesus as the result of gathering together. So we are not passive. We are not at home. We're here stirring one another up to love and to good works. So I gather with the body not just for my own sake, but because I'm devoted to the body of Christ, to building it up, to stirring it up. So I come to greet others and serve others, help others, welcome others, comfort others, pray for others. We inflame one another. How do you do that? Unless you're here and involved. How do you do that unless you're gathering in the small group or in the class? Can't be done. Secondly, verse 25, we're to encourage one another. Now, dear friends, isn't discouragement our biggest problem, really, if you get right down to it? Look over at chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 12. Hebrews 12, 12. And he exhorts them there to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak hands knees. Now the term here for encourage is paraclesis, from which we get the term paraclete or the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside of us and helps us, so we come alongside others and encourage and help them. And you know, I don't know about you, but I've often had drooping hands and weak knees. Have you ever noticed your heart getting cold to the things of God? Have you noticed weariness of mind and body? Have you ever noticed a growing apathy that, oh man, it's such a bother to do all these Christian things? Have you ever noticed a lukewarm spirit, a troubled spirit, a weakening commitment, disappointment with the church? Have you ever noticed, have you ever caught yourself thinking, yeah, why bother, you know? There's other more interesting things to do. So many temptations along this long journey of the Christian life. That's why this rule must be applied with iron. 
an absolute commitment, a total commitment. It must never be bent even one inch because there's always something to tear us away from the body of Christ and thus our spirits will sink and thus we'll engage a practical apostasy. This, the writer of Hebrews, is urging that it not happen. We need the church. The church needs us. We're gathered to encourage. We're gathered to stir up. You know, God's plan for encouraging the discouraged is the gathering of the believers. That's the biggest part of the plan. So this is something that must be done. Modern voice, Tim Keller, we believe the world was made by a God who is a community of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have loved each other for all eternity. You were made for mutually self-giving, other-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. So we need the gathering of the body to make it. We cannot live as self-centered consumers and fulfill the calling of the Lord Jesus upon our lives to stir up and build up the body. All need to be stirred up. All need to be stirring up. All need to be encouraged. All need to be encouraging. You know what? I've been discouraged and weakened in my Christian life only about a million times. And I've been encouraged and stirred up by coming to the body of Christ only about a million plus times. That's God's plan. So how can we lay aside this rule or treat it carelessly? It's essential. So, that's the exhortation. Those are the purposes. Can I now say a word about the TV and live stream church? These means and methods can never ever be an acceptable replacement for gathering with the church. To sit at home, not because of some necessity, but because it is convenient, because it is easy, or to go out and do this or that just because it is fun, is a total embrace of the flesh and the world and the devil's scheme. It's serious business. To sit at home, to sample this or that online, cannot fulfill the teaching of this passage. It forecloses involvement with the body, it eviscerates the purposes of the gatherings. The first order of business in the body of Christ is to encourage one another. If one of the residuals of this coronavirus period is that many, many professing believers will do this kind of thing, we must view the advance of this technology as a monstrous development, a destructive force in the body of Christ. Now, when I was a little boy, I had a football and a little tee, and I used to go out in my yard on the side of my house, and I would put the ball in the tee, and I would kick it. And since there was nobody to catch it, I would have to run down there and also be the guy, not only that kicked it, but also the one who would catch it. And so I would run down there and catch it or jump on it when it was still rolling. Then since there was nobody to fight against me, I would rise up and I would run that football back for a touchdown every single time. 
I ran back more touchdowns in my backyard than those losers Walter Payton and Gail Sarris put together. <laughs> now, if somebody would have drove by our house on Oak Street there in the big town of Norway, Michigan, and saw me doing what I was doing out there in the yard, perhaps they might say, hey, look, that boy is a football player. Would that be an accurate statement? Not really. I wasn't really a football player. I was on no team. I attended no practices. I had no coach, no plays. I was just all by myself doing my own thing. It only involved me, myself, and I. No coach, no uniforms, no practices, no team, just me. I could maybe say I was practicing to one day become a football player. Maybe someday I would join a team and get in the game. But if all I ever did was kick a football and run around in my own yard, no, I am not a football player. And in the same way, a Christian must be in the body to be a practicing Christian. If all I ever do is watch worship on a screen, consume a sermon, consume singing, all I ever do, I'm no Christian. Now, I may be saved. Doesn't take much to get saved, does it? Look at the thief on the cross. He looked to the Lord Jesus, perceived who he was, and cried out to him to be remembered. And the Lord pardoned his, his sins and said, I'll take you to be with paradise today. But being saved on your deathbed, so to speak, is not to say that you are a practicing Christian. There's more to saving faith in Christ in order to become and be a practicing Christian. One of the things is that you assemble with the body. I'm sorry if you don't like this. This is what the Word of God says. In the same way, about this coronavirus season, if we've come through this and produced an abundance of more stay-at-home, church-neglecting, professing Christian consumers, then this technology has been an epic disaster. It removes from the church so much power, so many numbers, so much vitality, so many prayers, so much blessing, so many gifts, must not happen. God calls us to be on the team and in the game. Now, I suppose, you know, I heard in coronavirus some people who never ever go to church were tuning in to see what God had to say in the midst of this uh, crisis. And if they're just looking to see, wow, what is it that a church does and what are they saying and they're seeking and learning, perhaps temporarily it can be a good thing. But sooner or later that has to stop somebody becomes a believer, then it's time to know and be known in the body, get on the team, get in the game. Thus the writer is saying, forsake not. Now, a second point. I think we are thankful for these technologies in times of extraordinary circumstances, and I really stress the word extraordinary times of crisis. We had a health crisis, we had a pandemic or whatever that was, you know, back when it first started. We didn't know what was going on. I didn't. I didn't have all the answers and so much information was confusing and the government mandates and everything like this. We do our best through something like that. You know, nobody has all the answers. 
times of invasion, war, natural disasters, maybe even persecution, one could envision something like this. Or there are people in an extraordinary season of life where illness or incapacity makes it impossible to gather. There's always been some of that. You know, we used to go around, I can, I'm old enough to remember, we used to go around to the shut-ins and give them a cassette tape of the service. It was a blessing because you didn't have to look at the ugly face of the preacher. <laughs> but even then you had a personal visit, you know, it was much more face-to-face, -face, much more encouraging. And we can get into a discussion of what it means to be present, you know. Are you really present in a live stream? Are you really present on a Zoom call? Uh, maybe in a sense. Paul said, I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit through his letter, through his writing. Although John said, I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink, but instead I come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The only way that presence is complete is face to face. So technology is only for extraordinary circumstances, not for the normal rule. It's not the normal rule. Let it not ever become the normal rule for any believer. Otherwise, the rule of Scripture is that we gather. Isn't Christ worthy of this? Now, the Hebrew believers had their own crisis, and, and the, the writer said, look, you gather. Don't forsake that. That's our rule. I don't know what you know about the geography of Canada, but you can see Prince Edward Island there, a small maritime island right across from Maine, north of Nova Scotia. It was founded by Scots back in the 1770s, and they came there and hewed some little towns out of the wilderness. There was a man named James Simpson Sr. He was one of the founders of the little town called Cavendish there that you see on the right. He was a devout Presbyterian. He was reared by Presbyterian ancestors. And for a long time, there was no Presbyterian church in their little town. It was just a wilderness town. He made their living on timbering and shipbuilding and things like that. Uh, there were four Presbyterian families, and they used to gather together. They ministered to their children and read the Bible, read the catechism, until uh, they learned that there was a church, a Presbyterian church, right about in the middle here, over by Malpec, another town on the sea. And so when weather permitted in the spring, summer, and fall, they would pile those four Christian Presbyterian families into a boat and go to church by sea. Now, I don't really know exactly how far it was, a few miles, several miles anyway. I don't know what kind of boat they had. I mean, these guys knew how to build boats. But I know it took them two hours to get there. So they would go for two hours, then they would sit through a two-hour Presbyterian service with an hour sermon, then they would open their picnic lunch and eat their lunch and fellowship with the brethren, and then, not to waste the day, there would be another two-hour service with another hour-long sermon. And after that was concluded, they would take their boat back home, and that was their Sunday. Sunday after Sunday. James 
Simpson Sr. Now, think about that and think about some professing believer, some modern American Christian who thinks it is too much bother to arise, wash his face, get dressed, and ride in a comfortable car a few minutes to a meeting house to gather with believers. Never, never, never should that happen. It's not for the practicing Christian. And you know what? Something else here about uh, James Simpson Sr. He had a son named what? James Simpson Jr. He was cut from the same cloth, raised in this family, a devout Presbyterian, became an elder when they finally had a church in Cavendish. And into that home was born a man named A.B. Simpson in 1843. A.B. Simpson became the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. He preached from coast to coast. He was one of the great and mighty dynamic leaders of the 19th century. He founded a great gospel preaching church in New York City on 8th and 44th Street. I was just there last week. He founded a missionary training school and over the course of his life sent out hundreds of missionaries to the ends of the earth. And he came out of that little place in that little church with the gigantic faithfulness of his father and grandfather. And you see, this obedience to this teaching of Scripture is more powerful than you think for ourselves, for our families, and for our churches. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this rule of Scripture. And I don't mind it calling it a rule. The Bible says, Psalm 19, your rules, your rules, your statutes, your ordinances, your laws, these are holy things, our Heavenly Father. Not that we are Sabbatarians and have all kinds of rules and laws for people, but rather that we hold to the holy things of Scripture, such as gathering with the assembled body. Father, give us the courage in these days when we see this weakening, being undermined by the flesh, the world, and the devil, and sometimes by means of modern technology. Yes, Lord, we affirm the good gifts of technology, but we must use them in keeping with Scripture. Because Scripture is the word of God, and we bow before it. We arise every day, and we put the word of God over our heads, and we walk in it. Yes, Lord, teach us, guide us, direct us, bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.